Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Welcome to Feminist Book Club podcast. My name is Ashley, one of the content contributors, and today I am joined by Dolan Perkins Valdez. She is chair of the board of the Penn slash Faulkner Foundation, and she is also an associate professor of the literature department at American University in Washington, D.C., She is speaking with Feminist Book Club podcast today about her third novel, Take My Hand. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for the invitation. So my first question is one that we ask all of our authors and guests who join us is, what is your definition of feminism? That's a good question. I I view feminism in a more specific way because I am a Black woman and I am a Black woman from the South. So I view it as a philosophy of empowerment for all people who identify as women and in every way, whether it be culturally, socioeconomically, racially, geographically, I believe that it is a term that really um, includes a lot of people under its umbrella. And so that's really important to me. And it should have sort of sub-definitions also because different sectors of people who identify as women have different concerns. Yes, thank you for your response. It's always nice to see how the definition of feminism has expanded um, to be more inclusive, which I think is what feminism strives to do. So thank you. Thank you for asking that. What is Take My Hand about? It's a novel set in 1973, Montgomery, Alabama, about a young woman, Sybil Townsend, who has just graduated nursing school at Tuskegee and takes her first job as a nurse at a family planning clinic and wants to do good in her community by helping women have more access to birth control. But she finds very quickly that things are not as they appear at the clinic. And how did the title arrive to you? Well, actually, the book was titled by my publicist, Craig Burke. We were struggling to find a good title. And I I never really have a title that I'm wed to in the drafting process. So Craig suggested Take My Hand, which I immediately loved. It is inspired by the uh, gospel song, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, written by Thomas Dorsey made famous by Mahalia Jackson and Aretha Franklin. And I thought that it it really encapsulated this moment, this post-civil rights moment, 1973, where people are really trying to hold on to their faith and things becoming better. I thought it encapsulated Montgomery, Alabama, which is where a young Martin Luther King had uh, been hired as a young minister and who eventually led the Montgomery bus boycott. And from what I understand, it was Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite song. So there were just all of these different things that made me feel like it was a perfect title for this book. Yes, I feel that the title really welcomes the story. And I think in a way it could offset what ha- what is happening in the story and the gravity of it. But it also 
adds a piece to it that I think also complements the story as well. So it's it's a beautiful, welcoming way to enter your readers into the story. Thank you. And also thinking about just the nurse asking the girls to take her hand or the mother of Civil Townsend asking her daughter to, t- to, to you know, take my hand and trust me. So the past informs the present in this book. You said that this book is set in 1973, which of course was when Roe v. Wade was passed. And we are currently dealing with the possible um, end to Roe v. Wade. Um, How did the past inform the present in this book? And what did time mean to this story? Well, the story is a dual timeline story. So Sybil Townsend is telling the story from 2016 to her daughter. And I thought it was really important to draw that connection between what happened in 1973 and now, because we are still dealing with some of these issues. As you mentioned, the U.S. Supreme Court is about to consider one of the most momentous uh, decisions of our lifetimes. We also have recently heard about women in the California state prisons who were sterilized without their consent, a whistleblower nurse in immigrant detention facilities has alleged that women have been sterilized without their consent. So I think time is really important because we're still talking about these issues. They're still relevant and we still need to be very, very vigilant about the exploitation of some of the most vulnerable members of our society. Yes, because in the book, it it's not just what's happening to the two girls in Montgomery, Alabama, but it becomes national. That is just, it's sterilization was practiced amongst the most vulnerable people. That's right. And I mentioned in my note, Buck v. Bell, which is a 1927 U.S. Supreme Court decision, which legalized uh, or protected the um, the forced sterilization of people in asylum and people who were considered, quote unquote, imbecilic. Um, so that that decision has been clarified in subsequent decisions, but it has never been overturned. I think this is something that we really need to think about and be discussing and we need to understand that there are members of our society who are still vulnerable. And I hope that this book will spur discussions about that. Yes, and I think it's interesting that it's a fiction novel instead of a, a history about it. You know, it gives something very interesting to read about because it is rooted in real life. So the, having the fictional piece, but it is rooted in real life is something Um, that I also found intriguing about the book. Right. It is inspired by the real story of Minnie Lee and Mary Alice Ralph, who were 12 and 14 years old in 1973 and who were sterilized without their family's consent. That lawsuit was argued by Joseph Levin, a young lawyer at the Southern Poverty Law Center, who took it all the way to the U.S. government. So my book is inspired by what actually happened. I take a different route because I was more interested in the nurses who worked at the clinic, but certainly there are elements here that are inspired by that true story, which I think is one of the most significant events in our American history. So a number of HBCUs, historically Black colleges and universities, are in the story. 
What is your relationship to HBCUs and what does having them in the story mean to the story? My main character graduates from Tuskegee. My dad also graduated from Tuskegee in the late 1960s. So I am a beneficiary, one might say, even though I didn't attend an HBCU, I am like many African-Americans, a beneficiary of that education that was afforded my dad. And I grew up hearing about Alabama. I, I don't know if it has the most HBCUs in the country, but there are a lot of HBCUs in the state yes. of Alabama. Is it the most? I believe so. There, I know that there's nine. Right. It might be something like that. It's either the most or nearly the most. Yes. And uh, that's those schools still do really important work. Um, Tuskegee is one of the first accredited nursing schools at an HBCU. I don't believe it's the first, but it's one of the first. And uh, an entire generation of healthcare professionals came out of those programs. So I really believe in the HBCU mission, the continued mission of uh, those colleges and universities. And, um, and in my book, I understand that. And there's the um, class, uh, Southern Heritage Classic, is it the Southern Heritage Classic in the book that, um, yes. they go, that they attend? There's one in Memphis too, and I always get the names of them confused. I think the one in Memphis is the Magic City Classic. I think they go, that one's the Southern Heritage there are a few of these bowl games yes, for listeners yes. that HBCUs yes. host that are community events that are popular yes. where you can see the battle of the bands and people are eating and socializing and alums go every year, year after year. And I do have them attending one of those bowl games in the book. I know about the game versus Grambling and Southern in Louisiana during right, Thanksgiving. Big- yes. There are a number of moments when Sybil corrects someone when they mispronounce her name. She's often called Sybil with a B. What did you want to have those moments do to show the power of her name? That's a good question. Yes, I felt like her name was such a testimony in and of itself. She's born in 1951. Her parents want her to represent the future of civil rights. Um, That phrase civil rights is already in use of course by 1951 and her parents are in Alabama and they have this daughter who is their only child and who is their hope. Even though it is in some ways just a name, in other ways it's more than a name. And it's a lot for her to live up to. And she feels the pressure of that. Um, I think it's a beautiful name. And when she corrects people, it does sort of draw attention to that, that her name is not just a name. It's also a word with meaning. And that she's not passive. And I think as much as she is a caring and loving and nourishing human being, especially to the girls, India and Erica, She's also someone who has conviction. She's like, no, this is my name is Sybil, not Sybil, you know, and it's just like and it's not a big to do afterwards, but it's just this is my name and this is how it's pronounced. And she stands up for herself in that way. And it's just these powerful moments peppered in the book that really drives her character development. And, you know, that's a history within African-American communities, our naming practices, our form of empowerment for us. A lot of people don't know that, but 
when someone names their child, particularly at this moment in history, and I think it still happens, it is a form of defiance. It is a form of reclamation because uh, during slavery times, we weren't able to name our children. And if we did name them, um, the enslaver might decide, well, I'm not going to call her that. I'm going to call her Mary. <laughs> right. And so naming your child is an act of power and defiance. And I think that that is what Sybil's parents have done is they have they have named her in a way of reclaiming power as parents and as individuals. And speaking of her parents, Sybil has a different relationship with each of her parents. How did you develop that relationship, particularly the mental health and class aspects specifically? Well, one of the things I was hoping to show is that, you know, there's all of this judgment of the Williams family, Mace, who is a single father because he is a widower and his mother, they are doing their best to raise those girls, Indian Erica. And it's not a perfect situation, but they're doing their best. And I didn't want to contrast that with Sybil's family, which would be perfect, right? Her family also has its challenges. Her father is basically a workaholic. He works all the time. And her mother is an artist and suffers from depression. And I wanted to reveal that her family was also doing the best it could. But one of the things that's happening is that they are not fully recognizing and acknowledging and dealing with and naming her mother's depression as such which I don't think was uncommon at the time, or even now, I think there are still people who don't recognize the signs of depression. So I wanted to show that each of these families is dealing with challenges. And even to sort of subtly suggest that a two-parent household isn't always you know, a better model than a, a one-parent household, right? That even though her father, even though she's in a two-parent household, her father is never home. So there's all kinds of permutations of family, both good and bad. And I wanted to really reveal the complexity of that. And for the Williams family, what is most beautiful is that they have their grandmother. So, you know, they their mother has passed on, but they have their grandmother, who is such a wealth of wisdom and understanding and a glue for the family. So Mrs. Williams isn't a replacement, but she's really just an elder of the lineage, which I think is such a foundation, particularly in Black households. Oh, yes. I mean, what would Black households do without grandmothers, right? But one of the things that we know about grandmothers is that there is no single type of grandmother. Uh, Every grandmother is not a a come to my bosom and let me Mm -hmm. and comfort you. Mrs. Williams loves the family, loves her granddaughters and her son, but she's grieving. Mm -hmm. She's grieving the loss of her husband still. She's grieving the loss of her daughter-in-law. She is imperfect. And so when Sybil meets them, the house has fallen into disrepair because she's not doing any housekeeping. She's cooking to keep the family fed, but that's as much as she can do. She has also been beaten down by the challenges of poverty. And so I didn't want her to be a stereotype of a grandmother, although she has some things that my grandmother had, right? She crochets, she cooks, you know, and she gets better as the novel progresses, but she's still a wounded woman. And I wanted to show her 
as a sort of fully realized three-dimensional person. So Indy and Erica are Mrs. Williams' granddaughters and who Sybil is um, caring for as their nurse. They're beacons despite what they have, en- have endured. What was most pertinent with writing about these Black girls? Very early in the book, and uh, I don't think this is spoiling anything because it happens within the first few chapters, Sybil learns that the girls have been put on birth control and one of them hasn't even started her cycle yet. She's only 11 years old. And it was just very important to me to depict them as the children that they were. I think quite often in popular culture and in, and really I would just say in the cultural imagination, black children are matured so quickly and are deemed to have these sort of adult uh, characteristics when in fact they are just children and particularly black boys, but it also happens to black girls. And so, I wanted to depict them as children. India plays with dolls. She loves dolls. She loves dogs. She's always picking up a stray dog. And, you know, my kids are like that. They play with all kinds of strays in our neighborhood. That's why I can't get rid of these two cats. I keep coming around. And that's what kids do, right? And uh, and Erica is a preteen. She's 12, 13 years old in the book, 13. And she just wants friends like any other 13 year old girl. And she just wants to have a quote unquote, normal childhood. She wants to go to school, right? And she wants to hang out with her friends, but she is being really pursued by the system is really the best word for it. So it was just really important to me that they be kids. Yes, there's a a moment in the book where um, one of the girls picks up a, a toy off of a desk and Sybil goes to reprimand her, but then she realizes she's just a kid who's curious in a new place. Um, so I appreciate that these girls got to be kids despite all of the all of that they endured. And so my last two questions, what bookstore or bookstores would you like our audience to buy Take My Hand from? And what organization would you like to amplify? Wow, I would really make some of my independent bookseller friends and my booksellers at places like Barnes and Noble upset if I chose a one bookstore. I will say that tonight I am launching my book. Today is April 12th, the date of us uh, recording this interview. But I will launch it at Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. But we have a lot of good bookstores in D.C. We have Mahogany Books. We have Solid State Books. We have Loyalty Bookstore. We have a lot of BIPOC-owned bookstores here. I hope people will support minority-owned bookstores in your town. Seek them out or uh, find them online. And I am chair of the Penn Faulkner Foundation, which is devoted to reading in the schools, writers in schools. We bring writers in and we buy books for kids in high school to read and to interact with the writers. So I'll give a plug for my organization, Penn Faulkner, which has done tremendous work in the D.C. Baltimore region to bring books into schools. And, you know, I've done a lot of those school visits and a lot of those kids have never seen a living writer. 
And so it's transformative. And I know when I was in school, I never met a living writer Mm -hmm. until I was in college. Um, And so, you know, I've had uh, moments where I've been there giving a talk in a classroom and went and towards the end of my 45 minute talk, one of the kids turns over the book, looks at my picture and says, wait a minute, that's you. (laughs) (laughs) I said, yeah, I've been talking for 45 minutes here. And they say, wow, that's really you. Like just seeing that moment of realization is so heartening. So I'll just give a, I'll just give a, a plug for Penn Faulkner. That's wonderful that students get to have that opportunity and and to have the book with them to take home is just so special and to build their own bookshelf and to be able to listen to authors talk about their work, just as we were able to do today on Feminist Book Club podcast. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. So Dolan Perkins Valdez, thank you for talking with us about Take My Hand and we appreciate your time and your words. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a thing.